Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about crimes in the news, and we could actually have a week-long show talking about crimes in the news, (laughs) because there is never any shortage. So many crimes, so little time. And it's so interesting to see which crimes are covered more extensively than others, Um, not necessarily because, I mean, sometimes it's because of the people involved, sometimes it's the horrendousness of the crime, um, various reasons, but... um, some some crimes kind of get short shrift. Now, one crime that hasn't that has been in the news a lot, but I'm very concerned that it's going to be getting short shrift, which is to say that we're not going to be hearing much more uh, about it, is the Hannah Anderson James DiMaggio uh, affair, <laughs> so to speak. Um, James DiMaggio is uh, a man who abducted Hannah Anderson in Southern California, um, and he uh, did this on, uh, she went missing on August 3rd, and of course one of the most interesting things is that um, this is the anniversary reaction of when his father, James DiMaggio's father, committed suicide. And, of course, in the end, James DiMaggio, the junior, um, committed suicide by cop. So there are so many things to, um, to talk about in regard to this. Uh, there's also, of course, you know, the case that just came back up in the news uh, because Oscar Pistorius just got indicted. That's the um, Blade Runner who uh, is uh, being accused of murder of his girlfriend, and that's, you know... That's a very int- a very interesting case. Very um, all kinds of uh, t- twists and turns with that too. And so I hope we're going to get to that with my guest today. My guest is Tess Cozine. She is a Beverly Hills family law attorney who um, deals with cases of domestic abuse and uh, and all kinds of other things that come up in uh, divorce and custody, which, of course, these days are turning more and more violent. So there's kind of a crossover between crime and, and uh, divorce um, and custody, actually, in particular. Um, uh, Tess, before I go to you, I just want to say just a couple of more words and, and you know, we, about uh, Hannah's case. Um, before we before we start discussing it, I I want to make it clear that I am firmly of the opinion, uh, not a popular opinion, but of the opinion that 
um, she was not abducted per se. That is to say uh, that she did not only go because he held a gun to her and threatened her with death and the death of anyone uh, who helped her, as, he, as she reportedly said that he did uh, say, um, but that she went with him willingly and that, in fact, um, she had... She was seducing him. This was a relationship of some sorts that she wanted or, or felt she needed because her daddy, you know, it was a daddy fixation. Her daddy uh, had moved away fairly recently after separating from her mother, moved away from California to Tennessee to take a job and because they were separated. Um, and instead, uh, James DiMaggio, who was 40 years old and she was 16, uh, became and uh, was, has been, well, they called him Uncle Jim, and he uh, was a father figure, a kind of substitute, and she, so she projected all her Oedipal needs onto him and was, in fact, in my opinion, um, complicit in, in this, you know, this kind of romantic adventure, um, if not the mur- tur- torture and murder of her mother and brother and dog. So with that, I will let you uh, introduce you, Tess Cozine, and uh, and welcome you to the show. Thank you, Dr. Lieberman. It's good to be here. Well, um, what what I, I know you said you told me before before we got on the air that um, you have been following this case really closely. It is a it's a very fascinating case, and the thing that I'm really concerned about, as I started to say, is that the sheriff who, even though they found all of these implicating items, or there was a warrant and they found these things at um, James DiMaggio's house, such as letters from Hannah, a handwritten note, two used condoms, um, handcuffs, uh, all of these intriguing items, he is insisting upon the fact that she was only a victim. And he doesn't seem to be... Um, wanting, I mean, the investigation is supposedly still going on, but he, he hasn't budged from his position. So what have been some of the things that you've been thinking as you've been um, hearing about this case? Well, those are definitely the most interesting facts that have come out in the recent reports about what was in the affidavit, the, um, the letters from Hannah to DiMaggio. I'm sure everyone's wondering what was in those and the fact that they had 13 text messages or phone calls the day of her kidnapping. But I think it's important. I would, I would make a distinction that while she may have been a willing participant, let's assume for purposes of argument that she w- went willingly with him, I still that don't think that that um, takes away from the fact that she is possibly a victim and victimized because of the fact that uh, predators of children predators of, on women, they know how to groom their victims, and she was targeted by him. She's known him for a long time. She trusted him. Like you said, she, he filled the father figure role for her, and there could have been a, a sexual aspect to their relationship. They did go on trips together. We don't know what that entailed, and to what point she was manipulated, that's the big question. We don't know how much he, control he had over her. Well, I think that that's a really good point about the grooming. Um, he actually was a friend of the families of her father's, and so he, um, she's known him since she was born. Uh, he was around since before she was born. So, yes, it would have been certainly a, an easy, she would have been easy prey in a sense 
for um, a predator, for someone. He, she he had a lot of opportunity to groom her, especially when her father left the state. Um, but so, so I guess I, I would agree with that, and I would say, though, that, that it, it would be a collusion between the two of them. He may well have been grooming her and looking for this opportunity, but she also... Um, you know, was had a role in this, seducing an older man, seducing a man who's the best friend of her father's, and so on. One, one of the things I, I w- was questioning as well in the details is that Ethan, her younger brother, was found in the house, separated from the mother, yes. who was tied up in the garage with the dog. And it said, um, you know, the news reports, I don't know, they, I don't know that they were able to determine Ethan's cause of death or whether he was tortured, but it said the mom was tortured and he shot the dog. So that all seems like it took a lot of time to do that. And I, I, what I wonder is where was Hannah when all of that happened? Yes. Because she claims not to know that any of this was going on. Yes, and yet she admits that she was there. I mean, the story is that um, he, uh, James, invited the family, the whole family, meaning the mother and the um, brother and Hannah um, and the dog, <laughs> invited them over to his uh, house that was on a lot of land and because he told them that he was moving to Texas, he, that he was losing his house, you know, it was being foreclosed upon and he was moving to Texas and so he wanted to have them over for a get-together before he left. And so that's why they all came. Uh, I, I mean, I guess he must have picked her up from cheerleading practice beforehand and brought her there because she admits that, um, that they, all of them, were at, this, at his compound. And yes, I was wondering the same thing. Where was she when all of these things were happening? And the other thing is... You know, here was a man who was the, the best friend or a best friend of her father's for 20-plus years. Um, why would he torture the mother, the, the wife of his best friend? What, I mean, that's only something that you do, like, okay, I can see shooting her to, so that they wouldn't stop him from taking Hannah. But torturing, that's just, that's something that you do when there's something really personal when you're really angry at the person on a, on a personal level what do you think could explain that well that's what we don't know is if one thing that's not come out from any of this is whether or not there could have been a relationship between him and the mother um, we don't really know why the the parents uh, separated or what led to their divorce but um, he could have been grooming both of them to to put himself in that father figure role, eliminate the father from from the picture, and then you know because a lot of uh, predators do this as well. They target single women with kids, mm-hmm. so he might have been doing that, and there could have been. But it, but it sounds like you're thinking maybe Hannah had some role, and there was maybe she was angry at her mom, take it out on my mom, and that's why Ethan was separated from. Ethan was not a part of whatever was going on in that garage. Yes, well, you know, another thing that they found are two used condoms. So who were they used with? Was that the mother? Was that Hannah? Oh, I don't know. It's horrible. You know, <laughs> it's just a horrible thought. And, and, but one thing that's, you know, the, the dog, the dog, he shot the dog. So, you know, a lot of um, uh, abusers, they, that's one thing they do is they will abuse the animals or kill them to get at their victims. So maybe that was, I don't know to the extent she's telling the whole truth because this, it seems like maybe he could have said, I'm gonna, I'll shoot your dog and I'm going to do your mom next unless you go with me willingly or help me with this. And 
because in domestic violence uh, orders that you can obtain here, um, one of the protected parties can include the animals of the mm. of this person seeking the protection. Mm. So it's interesting that he he shot the dog because he could have just let the dog go. Yes, yes. I mean, there's a lot of rage there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the really chilling thing, <laughs> as if we need more, but I, I think one of the most chilling things is that it, there's, a, there's something that's reminiscent, and I know this is going out on a limb, but um, there's something reminiscent about the movie Natural Born Killers. You must have seen that. Oh, yes, yes. Do you remember that? The first scene, I think it was the first scene, where um, the girl and the guy want to go off together, and so they kill her parents. Yes. And I think her brother, right? I don't remember that, but yeah, that was part of their the beginning of their killing spree, their declaration of independence, so to speak. Right. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, Han- I'm not saying that Hannah and James were planning on going on a killing spree, but... Um, but, you know, this idea of killing the mother and the brother, you know, um, I, I, I mean, maybe the mother was trying to get between them or like what you were saying, you know, there is, um, there, it, it, well, the other thing that was found or one of the other things that was found was a DNA test kit in the mother's car. Huh. huh. And there's a, we'll leave that, <laughs> we have to take a break, so we'll leave on that cliffhanger, and we'll talk more about it when we come back with my guest, Tess Cozine. She is a Beverly Hills family law attorney, and we're talking about crimes in the news today. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here with my guest, Tess Cozine, who is a Beverly Hills family law attorney. Um, we're talking right, well, we're talking about crimes in the news in general, and we're so far hooked on the Hannah Anderson case, um, who was allegedly abducted by James DiMaggio. The thing that, that's, that's, you know, besides the fact that there are so many little, um, 
unanswered questions or big unanswered questions, the thing that makes it uh, irresistible to try to figure out is the fact that the sheriff is still not uh, talking about some of the intriguing items that were found in James DiMaggio's home. And, of course, that um, leads one to, to try to to figure out, or uh, certainly leads me to want to try to figure out what went on, because what, what is he hiding is, is the question. What is he hiding? Why, why does he want us to just think of Hannah as a victim and not as someone who um, could, could have been uh, an accomplice or at the very least to have gone willingly uh, with James into the wilderness? And we were talking about the, um, the DNA kit that was found in the mother's car, and I'll, I'll really go out on a limb here. I mean, I'm, I'm admitting I don't know this, but it's something that occurred to me <laughs> is looking at the photos of James and of Ethan, uh, the eight-year-old brother. I may be totally wrong here, but the first thing that struck me was how the little brother looked a little like James. And uh, I thought that before I knew that they found a DNA kit in the mother's car. And um, it just makes one wonder whether, uh, in fact, James was the father of the little brother and whether that had something to do with uh, why um, Hannah's mother and father separated and whether he wanted to um, take, get um, DNA information or somebody wanted to, the mother wanted to, or presumably he wanted to, um, as part of this whole ordeal. Um, I, you know, it's just that it, it, it just, I, I don't like it. I'm sure, I'm sure, um, Tess, you have the same thing. Being a lawyer, when, when law enforcement um, is not revealing things, it's just very disturbing. Right. Well, usually when there's an ongoing investigation, that's understandable. They want to keep certain things under wraps. Right. right now, it seems that they've really kind of closed ranks and are being very protective of Hannah, which is understandable. She's a minor, and we, you know, we don't know what all she actually was subjected to during her time with um, James DiMaggio. So that's understandable, but frustrating for the rest of us who are fascinated with all the little details, like I am, of the case and trying to figure out, you know, what really what really happened because whatever we're getting doesn't really seem to be the whole story. And the DNA test is definitely, you know, something interesting. Does that the way you've just presented it is is it possible that this was now that we were thinking why would he have tortured the mom? But if, if there was an anger there, maybe, you know, maybe he started to suspect that there was yes, you know, um a relationship between him and Ethan and that was some kind of anger or revenge upon her for Wait, maybe he suspected that who had a relationship oh that um that james thought that hannah's mother you know that ethan if he had had an inkling that this is actually could be my son yeah he never told me all these years yeah uh-huh. that would explain some of the anger yes possibly. yes right her not having told him right and pretended that it was from the father from um, the same father as Hannah. Yes, absolutely. And I'll tell you, in, in doing divorce cases, family law, it's not an unusual circumstance where a man finds out many years later either the child that he's been raising or paying child support for is not his child or the fact that, um, you know, children are, are born to, um, you know, the, with a different father and, and somebody covers up that fact. It happens quite a bit, yes. quite a bit. Yes. 
Now, I don't know if you, um, there's one story, I mean, there are a few reporters who are uh, braving this and writing about it. Um, one, that, that one story that came out, um, there's one good story by Brad Knickerbocker, by the way, on Christian Science Monitor, um, that you all can look up after you finish listening to this show. <laughs> don't stop in the middle. But there's an, an article also in laist.com, um, which ta- and I haven't seen this anywhere, which talks about how the father of James DiMaggio, also called James DiMaggio, which explains it all, right? <laughs> um, he did something very similar. He um, uh, had a, a very troubled, violent past, and he was obsessed with a teenager. And this was 1988, and it was written about in a San Diego newspaper back then, and um, his, um, he had been dating, the, we're talking about the mother, he had been dating this girl's mother, and when they broke up, he began showing his affection to the girl, who was, interestingly enough, 16. <laughs> and he was 35, and, and James Jr. is uh, 40, so it's another 16-year-old girl. And um, he, James's father... James DiMaggio Sr. told the girl who was just recently interviewed um, but was still afraid of, 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 well, still afraid, even though the two men are now dead, the two DiMaggios are now dead, she's still so afraid. Um, so she wouldn't show her face on television for this interview. But um, he, she said that he told her that he only stuck around because he was in love with me. He wanted to take me away to a better life. And then she didn't want to have anything to do with him and um, so he broke into her house with handcuffs, just like James Jr. had handcuffs, and a shotgun, and told her he was going to kill her, her boyfriend, and her brother. <laughs> I mean, this is like a repeat parallel scenario. Um, in the end, she escaped because she ran, she said she had to use the bathroom, and she escaped, and somehow the, the boyfriend and the brother avoided um, getting killed, but he handcuffed the, the boyfriend to a bedpost. And, I mean, it's just really chilling how there are so many similarities. Well, and especially James, James DiMaggio had a rifle. Yeah, did he, he had a rifle. Was, yes, yes. Um, and, and, um, and, again, the fact that this was an anniversary reaction, that, that, he, that James Jr. did all this or, or was killed, suicide by cop, on the same day that his father... Um, committed suicide, and the days before, his father disappeared, and oh, also his mother had had um, died from cancer um, some years before, and that triggered the father's disappearance and ultimate suicide. And then it was the same time frame that James disappeared and, and got killed by suicide by cop. So I mean, he was acting out what his father did all these years before. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting uh, turn of events, and and whether I, I I mean you're the the psychiatric expert on that, but it seems like either could be could it be a learned behavior or some type of obsession that he had maybe with what his father did or the some deep effect that it had on him that he almost wanted to play out the same events again in his life almost what you said eighteen years to the day. It was um, let's see, nineteen eighty eight. Um, this his his father did this. Um, 
you know, it's interesting because if you think about how maybe he wanted to be more successful in this kidnap attempt or this, you know, getting the 16-year-old girl to go away with him, he actually got Hannah to to go away with him, whether it was against her will or willingly, um, as and his you know, he finished what his father couldn't. Yes. The, getting that. But unusual, the thing is, is, is the other girl got away, but if the difference here is that Hannah, if we go with the hypothesis that she was a willing or somewhat uh, manipulated participant, mm-hmm. then she didn't, she didn't really, we don't know what opportunities she had to escape that she didn't, she didn't take, but that might not be unusual either if she was completely under his control. Well, okay, but like you were saying earlier, you know, where was she when the mother and brother and dog were killed? It would seem like unless he, you know, had tied her up, right. or, I mean, how could he, how could he cover? That's going to take some time. You're, you're torturing somebody. That doesn't happen in five minutes. The shooting of the dog, the mom was killed with blunt force trauma, and then we don't know how little Ethan died. And then the house had to be rigged and set up for the arson. And according to the reports, Hannah says that she at least had knowledge that the fire was set to start at a slow blaze. She knew that it was at, on some kind of timer or trigger. Mm-hmm. So that's a very strange comment that she made, which, again, this is, you know, the whole thing that's very odd about this case, too, that she went online within a few days well, of being Well, yes, rescued. and let's talk a little bit about that, because some of the things that she wrote about online are really um, damning. You know, it bugs me as a psychiatrist um, to hear there have been some people who have been talking about how this, her explaining away her chat online as saying that it's a normal grief reaction. <laughs> There's nothing normal about it. Um, uh, you know, she, people don't do that when they've just, they've just found out, supposedly, uh, that their mother and brother and dog were killed. Um, she painted her nails, uh, and, and makes the comment, um, pink for my mom and blue for Ethan. She had one nail that was like half and half. That's what you do to, uh, you know, in, in memory of your mother and brother. Um, she was asked to send photos of herself to confirm that it's really she, that she's the one doing this chat and uh, spooning photos. And so she did that. And so, and, and there's no question. I mean, they've investigated that, and there's no question but that this chat, she was the one. Photos um, of her smiling, which was yes, odd. Yes. yes. was so, odd. But on, again, the one, one thing that's been a struggle for me to understand is the victims of abuse and the way they react to things and the, their conduct is often completely outside of anything you would call normal. You say, this guy beats you, he chokes you, he tries to kill you, you go back to him. Why? Yes. And, and so, you know, a lot of times their reactions to things are completely outside of what we would call normal. I don't know what what all she was subjected to as far as abuse and psychological manipulation by this guy. But um, I'm not saying that her, I mean, by all accounts, her, what she's done, posting on there didn't come across as normal or a normal grief reaction. But um, I'm just surprised there wasn't anybody monitoring her to say, hey, you need right. to not stay, stay off of uh, social media for now. So, right. You know, because if I had just gotten my daughter back after one week, there wouldn't be a minute she was going to be out of my sight for yes, a second. Yes, yes. And, you know, there seems to be some um, uh, 
some I don't know, disagreements at least um, between Hannah and her father um, because he's telling people, he's told the media that he's going to be taking her back to Tennessee with him. And she's told people that she's going to be staying in California and, and continuing to go back to the high school where she was. Um, so, I mean, they don't kind of have their act together. And, I mean, it seems like she would prefer to stay here, and he would prefer, of course, to have him have her with him. I mean, but it, it's interesting and strange that they're not on the same page with this, with what they're telling everyone. Right. There's definitely, going back to why um, James DiMaggio was able to get probably such a grip on her and gain her trust and be such a father figure, if she has high conflict, a high-conflict relationship with her dad and maybe possibly no relationship with him, it could be coming yeah. out now. Yes, and certainly just the fact that he, I mean, she would have felt abandoned even, you know, by him going to another state. I mean, I know it's hard to find a job these days, but that's kind of going very, very far, literally. Well, we need to take another break. Um, we're talking about crimes in the news. <laughs> so far, we're kind of stuck on the, on the Hannah uh, Anderson uh, case. Um, but we will get to Oscar Pistorius at some point, but there's just so much to talk about with my very interesting guest, Tess Cozine, who is a Beverly Hills family law attorney. So we will be back uh, after this break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking about crimes in the news so far, talking about Hannah Anderson and James DiMaggio. There are just so many intriguing aspects 
to um, the alleged abduction. My guest is Tess Cozine. She's a Beverly Hills family law attorney with the firm of Levin and Margolin. Um, and we were talking before the break about uh, some of Hannah's chats, you know, which I think uh, implicate her um, more than anything. You know, well, I mean, I guess it's a toss-up between that and what was found in the uh, in, in James DiMaggio's house, her her letters and so on that we don't know that the sheriff won't tell us the content of. Um, so, so there, for example, one of the um, things that uh, the correspondence on the chat line was um, someone asked, why are you on social media? Are you sure you're a victim? Uh, and she wrote, so assholes like you don't assume things like that. Now, why would you word, use, you know, here, here you, I mean, you know, we were talking and, and just the idea of putting selfies, smiling selfies up on a chat line, um, a, a chat site, uh, in itself is, you know, when you've just found out that your mother and brother are dead and, and you had this horrible, supposedly horrible or, or, ordeal being abducted, um, it does not ring true. And um, using words like asshole when you know that, I mean, I know that lots of 16-year-old girls unfortunately <laughs> talk like that, but when you know that the public is going to be looking at your chat and, in fact, this may be your plea for your 15 minutes of fame, trying to extend them. Um, why would you use a, a word like that? That just bothered me. Did you well, have any reaction to that? Yes. Well, I, the whole thing was strange. But then I tried to think, well, you know, this is a whole generation that's grown up with Facebook and Twitter, things that are it's just a part of their everyday life. And they also have grown up with reality television and the Kardashians and, and this idea that everything private is public and you know and, and it not just Hannah because of course she's thinking like a teenage girl and who knows how they think I, I don't understand teenage girls but you had the the guy in Florida that posted the murder of his wife on yes. Facebook so it's like social media has become this whole other way that people are communicating things that you would normally think would be completely private and certainly uh, you know, from a criminal perspective, I wouldn't want people posting their confessions of murders <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> yes, it does make it a little more difficult to defend them. Um, but, you know, this was at a time, I mean, what makes it really um, bad, we were talking about the conflict with her father, you know, this was at a time that her father was begging the media to please let them heal, please give them privacy so they can heal. And she's going behind his back, presumably, writing all of these things on, on a chat site. Yeah, she, she, she wants to have some control over her story. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, so that's interesting. But it, what was coming out was not playing well for her. <laughs> yes. It, what, it was revealing some things that made even more questions pop up because you weren't getting the, oh, my gosh, I'm just so glad to be back with my family and yes. I'm so happy. It was almost like a disaffected, um, very non-affected teenager who had just been through a horrible trauma. That's what I think was so disturbing. More interested in being um, in the public eye almost. Yes, yes. And then she was asked, did he take you uh, because he loved you? And she said, no, um, he took me to use me to carry his shit to the river. Now, that doesn't seem likely, but here we go again with her language. Um, then someone asked her, did you kick the creep uh, in, the, in the dick? No, he had a gun and threatened to kill me and anyone who tried to help. Um, and anyone who tried to help. 
Now, that was another thing that, um, that uh, and, and the thing is, she could say anything she wants about all this because he's dead. Right. Right. And, you know, that's the disturbing thing, too. It's like, well, and she sounds pretty strong-willed. So, again, even though you're in the middle of the wilderness, I wonder why she didn't run for it. Well, absolutely. And, and that go- goes to the uh, horseback riders. Um, which also was very interesting and strange because, you know, they said like that they... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, her comment that she said, she said, oh, I guess we're all in trouble now. Yes. But it was almost like a sarcastic, not like I'm scared, help me. It's, oh, I guess, kind of blasé. Yes, and I took it to mean that um, they were in trouble for running away together, not we're in trouble for... Um, I mean, if she, why, why, what would that mean? Well, I've, that's one way to look at it. I think that's how the media has been spinning it. But then if you go back to the perspective of um, if she was a victim and she knows that this guy's dangerous, she could have just been making kind of a hopeless comment that you're about to all die. Maybe she thought he was going to kill all those people. I'm surprised was, he didn't. No, but this was when they were, they were riding away at this point. They, this is the second time they saw them, and um, they, they were, she, she was... Um, had her feet in the water, and the man James was playing with the cat, not you know right next to her, and um, and it was kind of it was like one I think one of the guys one of the horseback riders turned around and it was like it, he heard it as they were leaving in other words, so so I almost like she was commenting not to them but to him like right, we're in trouble right hmm that's how I took it interesting um, so, but she still didn't try to get away. So it's it's just so like she wanted to be there. Maybe she was upset because he had promised her. If you go with the theory that she thought they were running away someplace romantic, and then she's you know realizing it's just what do you mean we're out here in the wilderness and yes. uh, there's no four star hotel. Yes, yes, <laughs> not what I signed up for. <laughs> right <laughs> to carry your shit to the river. <laughs> um. I, I mean, you know, that, see, that was the thing. Like, here she said that, uh, she, they said that she looked scared. And she was saying she looked scared because he said that he would kill her or anyone who helped her. But really, you know, it, it could be because she, she realized that now they would be in trouble for running away on this romantic, that they would be discovered and, and uh, for running away on this romantic adventure. Um, Which, again, still doesn't jive with how this romantic adventure includes tying up your mom and brother. Right. And you knowing or admitting, as she posted, that the fire was, a fire was to be set to start at a, at a later time. That, that they were, at least her brother was going to be in a house that was going to be set on fire. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So why would she have ever, you know, how does the romance figure into all of that? It's just, it's very strange, unless she's like the natural born killer. (laughs) Right. <laughs> I wonder if she saw that movie. <laughs> That's what somebody should have written in, in the chat room while she was still doing it. Another thing that doesn't seem to fit is, um, you know, there there are the pictures of how she came to the um, to the uh, fundraiser at the restaurant, and mm-hmm. then the car wash. Did you have any reaction to how she looked? No, I didn't. I didn't see those photos. Was she she looked happy again? And well, she she didn't look unhappy. I mean, she looked. You know, um, she didn't look like she was in mourning, but she also was wearing um, uh, very revealing clothes. She had on this blouse that, you know, with a bare midriff and short shorts. Um, I mean, it's just not the things that you would typically put on 
if you were mourning your mother and brother, you'd kind of be wearing more, um, you know, you'd kind of be um, sort of closing in on yourself more, um, you know, kind of, and and if you didn't want the media (laughs) to take pictures of you looking like that, you know, you'd be, uh, um, you'd be, covered up more or, or um, wearing baggy things or being in comfort clothes, you know? It's true. I mean, there, there's that, there, again, there's that question in my mind of where's the parental oversight yeah. on this? Why isn't there some comment being made? And another thought just occurred to me, we, we live in such a twisted society. I just wonder if she doesn't get herself some sort of reality TV show after all of this. Can you imagine? Because there is no criminal case pending right now that would... Um, that that they couldn't ha- talk, have her be a part of some show like that. Yes, yes, she could be uh, auditioning in a sense, you know, um, trying to look sexy so that uh, so that she'll get um, asked to be on, on a reality show or something. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's the sad thing is they they did some poll a year a few years back where you know what are the goals for for young women these yes. days and a lot of them responded that they wanted to be famous. Yes, yes, famous at all costs. But what I wonder if anybody's actually got her in counseling. Well, she did make a comment on the chat. Somebody asked if she was in therapy, and she just wrote back yes. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure what kind of... I mean, I would think when she was taken to the hospital at the beginning that they did some kind of crisis intervention, but whether she's still getting therapy, I don't know. Certainly no therapist, <laughs> no... Uh, Upstanding therapist would encourage her to to write on, uh, you know, on chat lines, on chat sites. Right, but again, that's I mean, when you look at how teenagers are today, they they live and breathe and die by their their Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Facebook accounts, and they're on they're pretty much um, anytime I see a group of of uh, people less you know nineteen and younger. They're, and they have phones in hand. Their their eyes are focused downward into their palm, yes, busily, is, you know. So it's almost like she couldn't stop herself. That she had to uh, post something somewhere in order for it. Maybe it's not even real to her until she sees it posted somewhere. Didn't really happen. Yes, but you know, like you were saying, I mean, you would think she'd be posting more about how wonderful my mother was. I can't believe that she's gone. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do without her. My mother. You know, love to, I don't know, love to swim or love to, whatever, you know, just think. That's a really good point because she she really hasn't said anything about how great they were, just some regret about how she wished she could go back and try harder to save them. Yes. And so, then, that, and in fact, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, but that's, that's what's so interesting is, yeah, that you'd normally be some long thing about how great my mom was, but maybe I don't know. Is it some? It could be too painful to even go there at this point. Well, yes. If it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't mixed with so many of these other things, right? I, I mean, you could look at one thing. You could try to say this is. Um, it's so painful. This is her defense against you know, believing that they're dead or. But, but it's just all of these things together. Um, paint a different kind of picture. It's interesting. Someone also on the chat site wrote, you, see, you seem okay, and she wrote um, that she wasn't, and she said something about finding out about my dog, little brother, and mother was killed, like that she wasn't okay, and it was, I mean, it was interesting the order that she put that, finding out about my dog, 
Lou, brother, and and mom, I think she wrote, was hmm. killed. <laughs> Is that the order in which she, she values them? Well, we have another uh, break that we have to take. What, how about when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll dig into Oscar um, and domestic violence. With my guest, Tess Cozine, uh, Beverly Hills family law attorney with the firm of Levin and Margolin. We're talking today about uh, crimes in the news. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, with my guest today, Tess Cozine from the Beverly Hills Law Firm of Levin and Margolin. She's a family law attorney, and we're going to be talking about Something that often comes up in family law, domestic violence, and the Oscar Pistorius case. The news today is that he was just indicted um, in South Africa. So, uh, Tess, you, obviously this is a case that you've been following as well, so tell us what your thoughts are. Obviously, my thoughts are that this is a classic example of a domestic violence um, situation, and everything that I've read about the facts of this case indicate that you know his his girlfriend, this uh, Riva Riva Steenkamp. She was a, a victim trying to hide from her or escape from her abuser, and he shot her in cold blood. And in classic style, the denials, the the crying, and the um, you know all that he's put on since then to gain sympathy from the rest of the world just fits in with the profile that I've experienced in you know in my own practice. Yes. Um... He does seem to, I mean, he, you know, he, he is saying, and he's sticking to it, he has said and is sticking to it, his defense team is, that, um, that he was, thought he was shooting at an intruder. Right, which makes no sense, because you're sleeping in bed with your girlfriend, and you think there's an intruder in the house, the first place you're going to look or to check is to see if she's in bed next to you, and when you realize she's not, then your concern would be heightened, and I don't think that you would think that it would be an intruder hiding in the bathroom, you'd think it was your girlfriend in the bathroom if you think there's an intruder and ask her if she's okay. 
not just firing shots willy-nilly into the bathroom. And the, the wounds that they found looked like defensive wounds from what I read, that she was covering herself huddled over the, the bathroom, the, yes. the toilet. Right. So he, he did it. And there's even some question um, about the trajectory of the bullets because he's claiming that he, you know, in a rush... Um, went to the bathroom without putting his prosthetics on, but some of the um, police are saying that the trajectory of the bullets doesn't match. It matches that of somebody standing in their prosthetics, which then makes it even more questionable that this was an accident. But that's a classic claim of the abusers, that it was an accident. Um, If it's not an accident, then it was somehow the victim's fault, somehow her fault. So he's done everything but accuse her of uh, pulling the own trigger on herself. I mean, if he could, he would say she tripped and fell. I mean, that's the classic kind of uh, excuse that we get from these sort of guys. Yes, and, and, you know, of course, the fact that it was on Valentine's Day and, you know, there were reports when this first happened about how she um, was emailing or texting um, another guy or, or another guy emailed or texted her um, during their time together before the shooting. Right. I mean, that's possible. That could have been the trigger. I mean, these relationships are very complex. So, you know, a lot of the times the um, abused women don't want to come forward because they see that their conduct or they think that their conduct that they did is somehow put them at fault. They've been led or, or you know, groomed by their abusers to accept it, that it's always their fault. And sometimes these women, they, you know, or men, they have done something, they, they have this high conflict relationship to begin with, and there could have been, you know, where she was instigating a fight with him or, or making him jealous for the reaction to push him to that next level. And then when he overreacts and becomes abusive, that's when the guilt falls into place and she doesn't want to tell anybody what's been going on. That's kind of a classic um, situation that I see a lot, too. Mm-hmm. So she might have been goading him, but it doesn't make her any less of a victim. Right. And also people, uh, there have been witnesses who, um, or people who have reported that they, well, a couple of things. One, that, that they heard uh, shouting before the shooting, <laughs> her shouting before the shooting. And also there was a story um, that came out again when this first happened about how uh, the police had been called to his residence before because of a domestic abuse Classic squabble. sign. Classic sign that something's going wrong because when there are repeated incidents and repeated reports made to the police, then you know that there is ultimately somebody is going to be seriously hurt. I mean, I just... Uh, finished, our office just finished up, or we still have a case in progress where that's been going on for, for years and years, and numerous, numerous calls made to the police, almost to the point where the wife was seen as crying wolf, because, you know, they go out, and they sometimes even arrested the guy, and then she goes back to him, and there's only so much people feel like they can do for these victims mm-hmm. sometimes, and it finally got to the point where he was prosecuted criminally, but, you know, it, it takes a long time for these women to realize sometimes that they need to get free, some serious harm has to happen, and sadly, in a lot of cases, they die yes. before anybody is able to help them. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, what I think this is related to uh, it has to do with his uh, being born without um, uh, legs beneath his knee, uh, the rest of his legs, and, um, and using um, prosthetic legs, but feeling, always feeling, despite his accomplishments, Olympic accomplishments, 
um, always feeling less of a man and never really believing that a woman could love him and always feeling sort of vulnerable that that sh- that no woman would stay with him because he's not enough of a man. I mean, he had this gun collection, and, or he used to shoot. He, there were reports of him shooting his gun off in various weird places, um, and you know, kind of randomly. And um, and I think you know, again, despite his all his successes, his, his Olympic um, uh, medals and so on, he when it came to these um, uh, relationships with women, he really still felt like he was inadequate. That you know the women wouldn't, and, and this woman, um, that she because she was a model and a, and a lawyer and or was in law school or something. Um, I mean, she was a, she was quite an accomplished woman, and I think he especially believed that he didn't deserve her, that she would realize that he wasn't good enough and leave him. And I guess then when there were these texts or emails or whatever from some other man, um, that that did um, push him over the edge on Valentine's Day yet. That's interesting. I, I don't even know if it, you know, because I was just, as you said that, I thought, you know, a lot of the cases that I've worked on have involved athletes and their wives with, that in, with domestic violence and issues of that and domestic, you know, in, in, so I don't even know if it even has to be that he's an athlete with, um, you know, prosthetics, but if it's something about the athletic personality mm. that makes these men more aggressive um, and more likely to be prone to domestic violence because it's it's really it just struck me there's quite a few very high profile successful athletes that like to just um, when they're behind closed doors they are complete monsters. Yes, yes, and I guess you know it, it can kind of go along the same thing that the um, the need to prove that you're macho by being a top athlete and having the discipline and the um, well, I mean, like, sort of needing aggression, needing to be somewhat aggressive to be successful, um, not to the point of killing anybody, but, I mean, to be an aggressive player and, and all that, that some of that goes together. And the ego. I think it's just yes. ego, flat-out ego sometimes. They cannot stand, I am number one, I am the greatest, and you have the gall to, you know, not do what I just said, or you're not yes. going to live by my rules, or you're going to flirt with that other guy and make me angry, you know, I'm, and I can get away with it because I have money, I have millions, and I'm famous, and you're nothing. Yes. So I'm going yes. to give you a black eye, and you're going to take it, and you're going to go in and tell your doctor that you ran into a door. As, yes. You know, is, that's, been, that's actually happened in real life. So, you know, um, also interesting is they said he was on steroids. I don't know if they said he was on steroids, but they found steroids and his so that would be something that could have, if he already had all of those factors for yes. being abusive, then that's going to make him just completely crazy. Completely yes, I, crazy. Yes, I think they, they found them and they were going to investigate that. I'm not sure that that's been uh, decided one way or the other yet, but yes, that certainly would add to it. Um, well, our time is up, unfortunately. We could, we could uh, <laughs> chew over these things for a long time. Um, again, my guest is Tess Cozine. She is with the law firm of Levin and Margolin in Beverly Hills. She's a family law attorney. And Tess, thank you so much for being on Oh, thank on you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you're, you. You're very welcome. And thank you all for listening. And uh, let's just hope that all of these crimes in the news um, get investigated fully and and um, that the guilt is, uh, falls where it is supposed to lie. So uh, thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.